So continuing with our lecture on the methodology of in uh, the acquisition of their creeds and the derivation of the principles or issues and uh, the reputation of the heretics. Unfortunately, that whole hour and a half we spent, or I don't know how long it was, <laughs> introduction has really taken about five, ten minutes, but that's normally what happens on sort of long windows. Uh, we want to now come to the, the next section, and I'm going to try to move the pace up a little bit quicker, because I think it's very important. I want to at least cover this. You know. Oh, are we not taking it? You can hear it. The sources upon which... The sources upon which Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah The sources upon which Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah base their creed, their aqidah. And as I mentioned, uh, that basically they have two fundamental primary sources, okay, that they base their aqidah upon. And that is the Book of Allah and the Sunnah, the authentic Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah, so when we come to the source of the Ahl Sunnah and they base their creed upon the Book of Allah and the Quran, of course, and the Sunnah, or we should say the authentic Sunnah. And the reason why we put this little description over here, the authentic Sunnah, is that as you all are well aware, that there are many narrations which were fabricated upon the Prophet and other narrations might not necessarily be fabricated but as yet they do not meet the test set by the scholars to confirm that these specific words or actions or approval, tacit approvals are um, from the Prophet and that is why we say the authentic Sunnah and unfortunately the books of Aqidah even the books, the classical books written by the Salaf whether it's um, Kitab al-Sunnah by Abdullah, the son of Imam Ahmed, whether it's Kitab al-Shari'ah by Al-Ajurri, whether it's Sharh Utul, Fi'tiqad Ahl-Sunnah by Al-Lalakai, these classical books which normally have a lot of hadith in them, narrations, sometimes have uh, weak narrations and sometimes even have fabricated spurious uh, narrations or what they call al-Mawdu'ah. So therefore we need to know the authentic Sunnah. But obviously if you're relying upon like Kitab al-Tawheed, which is in Sahih al-Bukhari, then you know the narrations in there all have met the test and are of the highest quality of narrations on the Prophet So the main source which they base their belief upon is the Book of Allah on the authentic sum of the Prophet Third comes to this is the Ijma' or the unanimous consensus, uh, the Ijma' or the unanimous consensus of the Senate. And again, over here we must say that which has been truly uh, affirmed to be their unanimous consensus. Because sometimes it is claimed that they agreed upon something, unanimously agreed upon a point of belief, and yet they have some certain difference of opinion concerning it. Okay? So when we say the Ijma'ah means that, and this is why the famous statement of Imam Ahmed, when, they, when somebody says it's known by Ijma'ah, he says, how do they know that there is an ijma'ah? Perhaps the people differed concerning this issue. I mean, you can't just claim ijma'ah. You cannot claim, claim that there was a unanimous consensus there unless you have certain um, 
uh, strength in your argument or a certain uh, wide perusal of all the statements of the Salaf. And also we say the unanimous consensus of the Salaf because, as we mentioned before, that the really the Sahaba and those couple generations after them which have the testimony of the Prophet ﷺ praising them. And as far as the generations afterwards, the Prophet ﷺ spoke about them disparagingly. Although he mentioned the Rawls remain one group of the Ummah upon the truth, but them as a whole, those other generations were spoke of in a disparaging manner. So the Ijma'ah of the Salaf. And the proof is, one of the strongest proofs and the easiest proofs to understand is from the words of the Prophet ﷺ where he said that my Ummah, my community would not gather upon error, on any error. Yeah. That shows that it's impossible for uh, the whole Ummah in its, all its um, uh, members to gather upon an error. And the other thing we should make a point that when we talk about the who whose statements of importance for the Ijma'ah, it doesn't mean just the general body of Muslims. It means the scholars. The scholars, okay? And also it depends upon the subject. I mean, obviously, for instance, if the issue is dealing with uh, Aqidah, a matter of belief, right? Like concerning Allah's Sifat, okay? And some grammarian, some scholar of Nehu, you know what I'm saying, doesn't accept the statement. His statement doesn't destroy the consensus of the Salaf concerning that matter. So it also has to go to the specialty. So it means the scholars of Aqid and scholars of uh, the Salaf, when they said this is something which we understood from the Prophet ﷺ and this is their ijma', their consensus, then therefore uh, this is also a proof. However, though, we should understand that they do not agree upon anything which is outside of the Book of Allah and the Messenger it's impossible for them to all be. The Prophet said, my ummah will not gather upon error. So it's impossible, for instance, for them to agree upon something which is not found in the Book of Allah and the Sunnah of the Messenger So we say the Book of Allah, the authentic Sunnah and the Ijma'ah. Now, there are two other sources of which you have, which basis of Aqidah, in a very wide and general sense and not really a main source. And that is the first is reasoning, or an Aqid. And the fifth one is al-shifra, or the natural disposition which Allah has endowed in human beings. Natural disposition which Allah has endowed in human beings. That's how I translate shifra, so I hope it conveys the meaning. Uh, okay, how do we know that reason? Well, for instance, certain matters, if you look in the Quran very carefully, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala proves certain matters of belief by asking people to reflect upon these matters. And I'll give you an example. Um, especially with matters concerning reviving the dead, quickening the dead. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala strikes an example, he strikes a similitude with what? With the barren land. That when a land is barren land, like in, in desert environment, and then a rain occurs upon it, that barren land then produces vegetation. Okay? This is an example that from something which has, is lifeless, Allah would brought life to it. In the same sense that the people, even after they die, and they're in their graves, Allah can bring life to them. And also Allah brings another argument of reason in the Quran. He says that, is it not that the if um, that the first creation, I mean that the second creation is easier than the first creation? In the sense that if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you agree, O people of Mecca, who have some doubt concerning the resurrection, the time of the Prophet, 
that Allah created you in the first place. You don't deny that. And therefore, after you die, would it not be easier for Allah then to bring you back to life a second time? I mean, since he brought you to life the first time, what would make it difficult for him to bring you to life the second time? This is an argument which is based upon in reason. Okay? Also, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, tries to tell them sometimes to reflect into the heavens and the earth and see, and since they acknowledge that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the creator and the sustainer and the giver of life and death, then therefore, should they not then only worship him if they confess and they acknowledge that these are his acts alone. These are arguments of reason. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in refuting the Christians says, did not Ibn Maryam and his mother used to eat food? Okay? Meaning that if they eat food, that means they needed some sustenance, right? And they needed sustenance means they have a weakness. You see what I'm saying? They need to rejuvenate themselves. So therefore, therefore, if they're like that, they cannot be Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah describes himself as that he is the one who is not said, but he's the one who feeds, as in Surah Al-An'am. So here are, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is using reason. However, though, reason, therefore, is, of course, these arguments of reason are, um, uh, let's say, um, under or um, are below the, the book of Allah, the Messenger, in the sense that you know, when we're dealing with the matters of belief, they're usually matters of un- the unseen. And the details cannot be understood through reason, as I'll explain shortly. And therefore, even though reason is a proof and a, a source for it, it must be, uh, we must put a, a condition to it, just like we said, the authentic sunnah, sound reasoning. Sound reasoning, okay? And al-Aqra Because somebody, sometimes somebody might reason something, but his conclusions were not sound, okay? Likewise, al-Sifra, the Prophet said that every single child is born upon the Fifra, which means the natural disposition which Allah has endowed human beings with. And Allah describes Islam as the religion, you know, that the, the fitra. And also the Prophet in the Hadith describes it as the religion of the fitra. So this natural disposition, we also find it. For instance, we find the natural disposition of people that when they pray, you know, and even if you go to any kafir, you know what I'm saying, go to any disbeliever, any homeless person, if he mentions God, you know what I'm saying, or if anybody gets into a car accident, always they look up. You know what I'm saying? When they say, oh God. Why? Because this is something a natural disposition which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed in human beings that they recognize that their Lord is above them. Okay? That their Lord is above them. And that's why when people pray, when people have hardship and so forth, you never find them looking left and right. They usually look up, you know. This natural disposition is a proof which we can use to establish that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is above his throne. Uh, not that Allah is above his throne, but he's above us. That he's above us, Okay? But the particulars of that, that he's upon his throne, this is only known through revelation. Through revelation to the sunnah. Because there is nothing in reason, or through uh, one's natural disposition, right, to know that Allah is upon his throne. Yes, reason necessitates that of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you can argue that since Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all good and he is greater, and therefore we recognize that as being above is better than being below, so Allah should be above. We can argue that through reason. And also, our natural disposition, we find an, an inclination in ourselves that when we want to uh, to pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when we want to ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that we, we look up, you know. That, but however, though, this only shows us that Allah is above us. But does this say that Allah shows us that Allah is upon His throne? That there's a throne and Allah is upon that? No. We only know this through revelation. So this is why one is known through revelation. The details of that but the general belief is known through, can be also established through reason and through the fitrah. 
And again, here the fitrah, we must also, so they transition to it, the uncorrupted fitrah. Because the Prophet ﷺ did explain that in the hadith, he says that, uh, then his parents make him a Christian, a Jew, or a fire worshiper. So it means that fitrah can therefore be corrupted afterwards, and so therefore even the natural disposition that a person finds, he will find that to be incorrect, you see. And that's why for the Christian it seems perfectly logical and also perfectly fine, you know, he even feels good when he, you know, thinks of the cross and the Trinity and so forth. But, because his fitrah has been corrupted, okay. So the point is that the, the aqidah is based upon what? The Book of Allah and the Sunnah of the Messenger, sallallahu Ijma' the, the consensus refers back to the Book of Allah and the Sunnah, and it in itself is also a proof. Sound reasoning and the uncorrupted fitrah are also proofs for the, for the aqidah. But however though, they are not independent. They're not independent because they cannot gain the details of belief as Allah wants us to do. And also, there is no way to really check if that reasoning is sound or if that reasoning is false, whether that fitrah is correct or whether that fitrah, that disposition is corrupted or uncorrupted unless you refer back to the, the revelation, you see. For instance, if two people are now to argue something by reason, how can we know which one is the correct reasoning and which is not the correct reasoning? Each person obviously feels himself that he's reasoned it out correctly. And also one's natural inclination that he feels. This is correct and this is incorrect. How does one know that, well, the only way to know that if that inclination is a correct feeling or if that's the whispering of the devils, you know, is through by referring it back to the Quran and the Sunnah. Okay? Another proof for the fitrah besides that hadith is the ayah in Surah Nur, which Allah says, Nurun ala nur, light upon light. Some of the scholars have explained it. Some of the salaf means is when the light of revelation is upon the light uh, falls upon the light which is in the heart from the fitrah. So it increases in light. Okay. Then it becomes more, the soul becomes more, uh, enlightened. Okay. So that's basically, uh, the source is very clear. And as I said, I want to really speed through this section, uh, as quick as possible. But the point is, is that these two, reasoning, sound reasoning and the uncorrupted fitrah, are not in themselves de- independent of revelation. Revelation is the foundation for knowing our belief of Ahlussunnah Jama'ah, and these are proofs, right? But however, that they have to be referred back always to Quran and the Sunnah, so you can know if it's correct or not. Now, this is as opposed to another group of people. Another group of people, the, uh, the, the incorrect Islamic sect, the heretical sect, uh, they they replace this with their own principles, the Book and the Sunnah and uh, the Ijma'ah. They usually replace this with some things. One is uh, reasoning, okay, and the second one is uh, not people, uh, sensation, and the third one is dreams. Okay, we find groups that have gone astray will base their beliefs upon these, and they will give them more weight and more precedence to the Qur'an and the Sunnah, for, and the Ijma'at, the Salaf. They will find, like, for instance, the philosophers, okay, those Muslim philosophers, and likewise those who have been influenced by, or the, the Mutakallameen, those who have Ilm al-Kalam, uh, theology and so forth, they will always try to use the arguments of reason, and they will say that when it seems to us that there is some sort of, uh, <coughs> there is some sort of contradiction between revelation and between reasoning, we must place forward reasoning. They make this the, the source of the belief. Likewise, the Sufis, the mystics, right, will place their sensation, 
their mystic feelings, you know, which they, they're un, what they claim their unveilings and so forth, and mystical experiences, as the foundation for checking at the Quran and the Sunnah. So they'll say that this, if I feel that this is correct or wrong and so forth, I had an experience and so forth. Or, uh, usually sometimes Sufis will use dreams often. Okay, that I had a dream and so forth, and in this dream I was told this is the foundation of their beliefs. So the point is that reasoning, sensation, and dreams in no way, in no way are the sources of belief. Yes, you can have true dreams. Yes, you can have correct sensation. There is something called farasa, which is a sensation and so forth. Yes, you can have sound reasoning. But they are not independent in establishing the revelation. They are always dependent upon checking your reasoning, your sensation, your dreams against the balance of the book and the sunnah. And that which falls correct in it is accepted and that which is incorrect is going to be rejected. I asked this brother, he said something. Um, I was going to ask you about the, uh, the last two items from the book, the reasoning and the, uh, since they are dependent to the other three, the above items, can they explain them like using reasoning or to explain something in the Sunnah or in the Quran? What do you mean? Since, they are, since you said they are dependent, they cannot be independent of. Now, I understand your question, and as we'll later on uh, approach, inshallah, if uh, we have enough time, that the answer is no. Because the point is that the Quran and the Sunnah in themselves is not in need of reasoning and of, of the natural fitrah. The Quran has explained in itself the arguments of reasoning and the arguments of, of al-fitra, uh, the, the natural decision of people, you see. And so therefore, the Qur'an is to not be understood as just certain <laughs> principles, issues, and we cannot understand these issues unless we have to apply to it a certain uh, uh, reasoning or a certain ex- experience, some sort of uh, intuition or feeling and so forth. That's what the philosophers and that's what the Sufis, the mystics do. They come to the, 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 the verses in the Qur'an <laughs> and the narrations of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu and they say that these things are, we cannot understand them unless we place one of these sources, you know, one of these means to explain them. And this is incorrect. What we're saying is, no, that yes, you can, through reasoning, prove things in their religion. Okay? And yes, there, you can have correct experiences, which are truthful. But there's no way for you to know 100% certainty that your, your experience, okay, or your reasoning is sound or correct, unless you refer back to the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And the Qur'an and the Sunnah in themselves are independent, they are of no need of these things. And it's clear in itself in the Qur'an and the Sunnah that it's not a necessary in need of these sources, you know what I'm saying? Even though they are in themselves somewhat sources. Allahu Yeah. Uh, uh, what is the Qiyas in this sense means, you know, there's two types of Qiyas. There's Qiyas in the fifth sense, which Brother Jalaluddin will probably, or whoever's doing the Uthul fifth lectures, explain. And there's Qiyas in this sense, an analogy, which means analogy through arguments of reason, okay? Through demonstration and so forth. It's, it's a different situation here. This type of Qiyas, in terms of uh, matters of belief, is, is, is not acceptable. Because in order for you to make Qiyas, in order for you to make an analogy, you have to be able to know the reality of what you're striking an example of, you see. And since the matters of belief are usually matters of the unseen, how can you make an analogy with it, you see. But matters of fiqh, 
there might be two similar matters, so you make one chiasm upon another matter, because they, you, they're in front of you, and you can make an analogy to it. Okay? And this reasoning, you said it's the Quran and Sunnah, independent of reasoning, one uh, for for a person from the Ahl Sunnah, right? Like if he's already a member of the Ahl Sunnah, and um, he wants to remove, uh, he wants to derive some belief or an act. It is only then that uh, he relies on the Quran. But if a person is not in the fold of Islam, then uh, then reasoning is uh, uh, is in the Quran in in need of reasoning. Yeah, not like that. But uh, maybe I miss, maybe I perhaps I misexplained the whole topic. The the issue of reasoning is twofold here. Okay. You know, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, obviously, right, when, when, when the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in Mecca to those pagan, you know, idol worshippers, right, they neither believed in the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, nor did they believe in the Quran. How was Allah to convince them that this Prophet was true, and that this, uh, that this Quran was true, okay? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala used arguments of reason with them. Like, for instance, he said to them, okay, if you are in doubt now that these words which he's saying these are the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that they're just something that he's fabricated or that he's marked them from something or it's a type of poetry or a type of uh, um, soothsaying uh, words of soothsayer or something like that then come with a Quran like that this is an argument of, of reason it's not an argument of um, in the sense of uh, an argument in, in it's based in revelation because we know the argument is found in the Quran but it's an argument asking people to reflect and to reason that's one thing. The second, the second half of the argument, which I was talking about, for instance, that can we say, can we prove the existence of the Day of Judgment through reason? Okay? I mean, this is a question that Ibn Taymiyyah talks about, for instance. He says that, according to Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, is the belief of Ahl Sunnah Jama'ah that we, the only way we know that there is a, a, um, a Day of Judgment is because Allah has told us. And that had Allah not told us, there would be no way for us to demonstrate the existence of a Day of Judgment. Ibn Taymiyyah says no. He says, according to the correct opinion of Ahl Jama'ah, that we know the existence of, of the Day of Judgment by revelation and also by reason. How do we know by reason? He gives an example. He says that if you take any child, okay, any baby, and you slap it, you hit it, okay, or if something bites that baby, like a, um, you know, I mean, an ant or something like that, that baby will continue to cry until it feels that justice has been taken on its behalf. And that's why you notice what, what do parents do when, when children fall down? When their child falls, you know what I'm saying, they usually, and let's say the child falls and hits himself against the chair and starts crying. What does the parent do? He hits the chair, says, oh, bad chair. And then the baby stops crying, right? Why does the baby stop crying? Because Allah has endowed in that baby a, a thing of reasoning that if somebody has done injustice to you, that there must be reparation for that injustice. And the baby senses when the parent hits that, that chair, that some justice has been done so it feels that it's been satisfied and stops crying. This Ibn Taymiyyah says is, he says his words are like this, he says, <laughs> It is more um, entrenched or in, in the souls of people than to know that, for instance, that a part can never be given in the whole. This is something which Allah has created in human beings. They realize that the part can never be bigger than the whole. But he says that this concept is more deeply entrenched in the souls. See, so this is an argument of reason. Okay. How do we know that this line of thought, though, is correct? 
sound reason and a false reason. We need the revelation to prove it, you see. And, and that's it. And, and there are just very few matters that you can show by reasoning. We can show that Allah exists by reasoning. How do we know that Allah exists? Because there's not a single action that says it has to have an act toward to it. There's not a single effect that says it has to have a cause. And likewise, since there's a creation, somebody has to have brought that creation into existence. And that's why Allah says to people in sort of four, right? Were they created from nothing or were they themselves a creator? Right? Were they created from nothing? Well, they're still the creators, right? Meaning that obviously if their existence has been here on the earth, there's something has to have brought them into existence. This is an argument of reasoning. But now, all the names and attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and all what Allah deserves from the different forms of worship, and so forth, can reason determine that? No. Revelation has to come, you know what I'm saying, to explain that. And that, that's just that's all that, that matter was about. Don't look into it more than you were there. Okay. So that was basically, in brief, the different uh, characteristics of the belief of Ahlusun al Jama'ah. These are not the characteristics, the sources, okay? Now we say there are certain characteristics, okay? I want to quickly go through these. And I have seven characteristics of the aqeed of Ahlusun al Jama'ah. In the sense that when we start saying now that this belief that we are striving to learn and we uphold in our hearts inshallah ta'ala and we want Allah to judge us upon it has certain unique characteristics unique qualities that distinguish it from every single other belief system whether that is the beliefs of a different sect or a faction in the Islamic Ummah or a religion outside the fold of Islam and I have uh, how many characteristics do I have? I have seven characteristics the first characteristic that is that it is of a divine infallible origin so these are the char- unique characteristics, right? Unique characteristics. That is of a divine, infallible, infallible origin. Okay. For instance, all other religions, beliefs are based upon people. The Christians, for instance, they have the creed of so-and-so. They have the creed of this council of so-and-so, which they gather together and they say, this is the, the tenets of our religion. Okay. Also, in the different sects of the Ummah, the different groups of the Ummah, they always will say that this is the belief of this group. They identify themselves with a certain party or a certain person or a certain historical event. The belief of Ahasun Jama'ah is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We say, we believe only what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us. That's why we said the first two sources, and this is the main sources of the Quran and the Sunnah. So it's of divine origin, and therefore it's infallible. There can be no contradiction in our beliefs. Okay? We can either have contradiction like, like the um, Christians, who say that God is one person, but yet three persons at the same time. This is contradictory. Or, at the same time, like the beliefs of... Um, let us say, the, like the Shia, for instance, right? Who yet, you know, say that the, the Prophet's companions, okay, were all hypocrites and were disbelievers and were renegades from the faith and so forth, and yet, they're the ones who spread Islam throughout the regions of the earth. You know, and yet the Prophet ﷺ confided upon them and relied upon them and so forth. How could this be? You know, I mean, how would, why would a person, if a person doesn't believe, somebody was a hypocrite, right, and doesn't believe in something, and actually he was a renegade and was actually working to destroy it, why would he at the same time put his life and his wealth and his whole, you know, his whole life history just to serve the purpose of that, you know? And even after the death 
of the Prophet Sallallahu still go on and do more than that. This is contradictory, okay? So because it's from Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, it is infallible in the sense there's no errors or falses in it, and then also uh, uh, there's no contradiction you can find, okay? Other, other beliefs, they usually, you will find, this is one of the main characteristics, other people, their, their, their beliefs are basically two, fall under two things. Either under philosophical spe- speculation, philosophical speculation, or a mystical experience. In the words of Ibn Taymiyyah, he says, Qiyas falsafi wa kash sufi. This is what other beliefs fall under. Are there a combination, you know, of that, okay? But the people of the Sunnah, and the, we take our beliefs from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is not upon philosophical speculation, nor upon mystical experience. These are two opposite extremes and have deviated from the truth. That's the first, um, uh, the first, uh, characteristic. And also, from this is that, since it's from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's also uncorrupted. Because we know that, from the Islamic religion, it's one of the self-evident truths that this is the last revelation that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent to mankind, and Allah has promised to preserve it, right? So therefore, it's uncorrupted. I mean, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has preserved the book, and obviously has preserved the foundation of the book, which is the belief system and the, the creed of the, of, and the sunnah, and so forth. So, therefore, we find the other people who claim that their religion relies in a divine source, like the Christians, right? Their religion is one which it has been corrupted, it has been replaced by one of their own making. And this is why, look at the, the book that Ibn Taymiyyah wrote in response to the Christians. What did he call his book? He called it Al-Jawab al-Sahih. This is what happened was that some Christians wrote a, an essay, a treatise, refuting Islam. Okay? Ibn Taymiyyah refuted that. He called it Al-Jawab al-Sahih. The correct response, for what? Liman baddala din al-Masih. For he who has changed, replaced the religion. Really, baddala means to replace the religion of the Messiah. Meaning Isa Maryam, okay? Meaning he's replaced it with one of his own making. So, even if somebody was to claim that their religion is, their beliefs are in divine source, it has been replaced and has been corrupted. Unlike our beliefs, Ahl Sunnah Jama'ah. This is a response, okay? Yeah. Both of those mystical experiences and philosophical speculation fall under the vine? No, no, no. These are wrong paths. These are wrong paths. What I'm trying to say is that we have our religion is based upon divine origin from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revelation. Other people's belief is either lies in mystical speculation or in philosophical speculation or in mystical experience. And those who claim that their religion lies, their beliefs rely on divine origin, like the Christians, they have been corrupted. So we are uncorrupted. Yeah, the opposite. The, the opposite or the... Uh, the opposite. Okay, the second characteristic, mind you, is that in our beliefs, that, which makes our beliefs unique, then I'm saying, is that it agrees, it agrees with sound reasoning, And with man's, and with man's natural disposition, endowed in him by Allah. You know, otherwise, al aql al-sahih and al-fitra. You will not find any Islamic belief which goes against sound reasoning and 
man's natural disposition. However, though, you might find a Muslim, or even a non-Muslim, right, have harbored some doubt concerning an Islamic belief because their reasoning is not sound, or their fitrah has been corrupted. You see? However, though, when a person's reasoning is sound and his fitrah is, is um, not corrupted, he finds the aqidah fits perfectly. And this is why the verse comes, Nurun ala nur, light upon light, according to one explanation. Furthermore, uh, <coughs> that, and this is like, for instance, the Christians, for instance, I was finding earlier when we were sitting between uh, after Salat al-Asr, when they come with their belief of the Trinity, right, it has no basis in reasoning. I mean, reasoning shows that the belief in Trinity is false. And that's why they say it lies in faith, in revelation. And they say it's a mystery, because there's no way they can prove to it logically, you know, I'm saying not logically, they can prove through sound reasoning that this is the correct belief. Likewise, um, you find people who are, uh, who say that Allah is everywhere, you know what I'm saying, that their natural disposition is that when they have some sort of hardship, you never find them looking here and down there and to the left and to the right. They always raise their hands and their eyes look up. You see what I'm saying? But So their beliefs go against what their natural disposition is. Okay. Even though they might enunciate something, they say, no, the way we don't believe in this, you know, we know it. We say that Allah is everywhere and so forth. So the point is, is that the correct creed agrees with man's sound reasoning and with natural disposition endowed into him by Allah. Okay, the third one, the characteristic, is that this sound creed, this aqidah of Ahl al-Jama'ah, is one of clarity, straightforwardness. Clarity and straightforwardness. And in the sense that, you know, the Islamic aqid is very simple. It has no, it's not like, for instance, anybody anybody's ever read philosophy, right, and tries to understand the arguments of the philosophers. Like if you read something by Aristotle or by Plato, you get lost in Okay. Even if you read the arguments of the sects which have gone astray, like the Ash'aris, and try to understand what they're talking about, you get lost. Because it is one of complexity. Not because complexity in the sense that, because it has some sort of lofty idea or something like that, because it's contradictory. And it doesn't agree with one sound reasoning, nor does it agree with man's natural disposition. So therefore you find yourself, both your mind and your soul, have some sort of... Um, Discuss and some sort of desire to stay away from it, and you find it difficult to understand it. Okay, and I'll give you an example. You know, the, the scholars say there are certain things which there is no way you can explain. It makes no sense whatsoever. One of the things is the same as the Ashadi. That an action. See, the Ashadi they will not say, for instance, they believe because they believe that Allah does compels everybody for their actions. Okay, and they believe that nobody can do an action upon him by his own accord and by his own choice. They say that, for instance that if you take a knife and you kill somebody, you don't kill the person with the knife. But death occurs at the knife. Okay? And for instance, because they don't believe anything has an action to itself, they'll say fire doesn't burn, but burning, the sensation of burning occurs in the presence of fire. This makes no sense whatsoever. Okay? I mean, if you try to think about it, as much as you try to think about it, as much as you try to look at their arguments, of their greatest scholars and try to explain it, it makes no sense whatsoever. Everybody understands that fire has the property of combustion, right? And it causes burning. This is something which is, which is well understood. They say, no, that's not true. 
They believe it's something wrong against the aqidah to say that fire has a property of combustion and that it causes the burning. They say, no, that burning occurs near fire or, you know, next to fire, but fire doesn't burn. Fire and ice are like the same thing. There's no difference between the two. But near fire, you have the sensation of burning, you know what I'm saying? And as a side point, you see, this is why Muslims uh, went backwards in science and so forth. You know, some people think Muslims went backwards in science. They don't understand why. When Muslims left the straight aqidah, you know, they didn't believe that things, there are causes and effects. Because the Ashadis don't believe in causes and effects. Okay, that's why they say things burn near fire, but they don't burn, fire doesn't burn. Uh, scientific investigation is no longer necessary, right? Right? Why would you want to investigate why, which, this thing, why has this property and that has that property and so forth, you see? And when this belief became commonplace in the Muslim world for after centuries and centuries, scientific investigation ended. You know, and Muslims became very backward, uh, their civilization and so forth. And this is a direct effect and a line of effect. But the point is, is that the aqidah is one, uh, which is free of all, uh, contradictions, is one of clarity and straightforwardness. That's three and four. Clarity and straightforwardness is three, and four are free of contradictions. I sort of mentioned that earlier. Uh, and, <coughs> so four are free of contradictions. And the reason why we find it free of contradictions, another proof that it's free of contradictions is that, look, Look at all the other people of the other sects. You never find any great scholar of Ahl al-Jama'ah leaving, of Ahl al-Hadith, right? Leaving the beliefs of Ahl al-Hadith and then becoming a Sufi, or becoming a uh, Ash'ari, or becoming a Shi'i. Never in history. But you find the people, the great scholars of the other groups, leave those beliefs and then fall, come to the beliefs of Ahl al-Jama'ah. And I'll give you an example. Al-Ash'ari himself went through three stages in his life. Finally coming to close to the beliefs of Ahl al-Hadith when he agreed with the beliefs of Ahl al-Hadith in general. Maybe not in all the particulars. And he wrote a book called Al-Ibana, which was one of the final works he wrote before his death. Uh, likewise, we find Al-Baqilani, which is one of his main students, also coming to a change towards the end of his life in a book called Al-Tamheed. Also we find Al-Juwaini and his son, Imam Al-Haramain, also, towards the end of life, forsaking Ash'ari and trying to come to the beliefs of Ahl al-Jama'ah or Ahl al-Hadith. We also find Al-Ghazali reported that also he made this final conversion in the end of his life. And Al-Shaykh Rastani and Al-Razi and others. So, we find historically that the people who are philosophers, the people who are great scholars of Ash'ariyah, of philosophy, and even of different religions will come to Islam. We never find Historically, any sort of great imam in Ahl al-Jama'ah who has left the beliefs of Ahl al-Hadith and have taken the beliefs of anybody else. And that's because there's no contradiction in the beliefs. Why would he forsake it? Okay, the, uh, that was the fourth characteristic. The fifth characteristic is that this aqidah is the cause of victory in this world and success in the hereafter. How do we know that? Huh? Well, that's true. Well, not, not history. But the hadith, remember the two hadith we mentioned in the lecture before that? Prophet said there's always one group which will remain upon the truth. And we said that group was Ahl al-Hadith, right? And there will always remain one, the, the say of second hereafter as Ahl al-Sunnah or Ahl al-Hadith, right? So that means this aqidah, therefore, is the cause of victory in this earth, right? Ascendancy and also uh, success in the hereafter. And that's the fifth characteristic. The sixth characteristic is that, that, it's, that this aqidah it's the, the creed of unity. It gathers people, okay? 
And that's something very clear. I mean, that's why they were called the Jumeirah. Right? Because, and that's because they've, they've gathered themselves upon this truth. And that's why you find only true unity among the adherents to this truth, to this belief. All other groups, all other sects, all other religions, they appear to be unified, but they really have a lot of differences between them. You know what I'm saying? Allah talks about the Christians. He says, Ba'asuhum Bainahum Shadid. That their enmity between them is very severe. And the line of the Quran says, You see them as one, and their hearts are different. Different, you see. So the other groups, they always differ. That's why you always find sects split into more sects, and split into more sects, and split into more sects, and split into more groups, until they become so few and so in number. But this is something you never find among Ahlusun Jama'ah. The same belief that the people of the Sunnah today have, the scholars of Ahlul Hadith today have, same belief they had a hundred years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, all with the time of the Prophet We read the same books. We don't have anybody coming and say, okay, this is the new, you know, revised edition of the Sunni belief, you know. We're going to change some things here and there. No, we read the same books which were authored by those scholars, you know, over 1,000 years ago. And that's because it is a creed of unity and also the seventh characteristic that I just sort of pointed to that it is constant and unchanging. Okay? You know, even though people now think that to evolve is to become better, sometimes to evolve is not to become better. Okay. So, in fact, our belief goes back to the, to Adam. The same creed we have, and is the same belief of Adam, of Noah, of Moses, of Ibrahim, of Isa and Maryam, all the prophets and their followers. Why? Because their belief in Allah is the same as our belief in Allah. Their belief in the Day of Judgment is the same as our belief in the Day of Judgment. And that's why the Prophet said, Deenul Anbiya Wahid. The religion of the Prophets are one. You know? Okay? What about the Hadith of Allah? Sorry, son. Right. Going back to the sixth point you're making. Of unity? Yes. Right. Those sects, they split off from the main body. They innovated something. You see, it's not like, I mean, it's different when you say, for instance, okay, this is our principles and we divide upon those principles. Because those principles are in themselves false. Like the Shia, they all believe, you know, that Ali had the right to Khilafah. But then because their beliefs are false, they then divided afterwards who had after Ali's death, the right to Khilafah. So you have the Ismailis, and you have the Ja'afiris, and you have the Zaydis, and so forth and so on, the Kaysanis, and so forth and so on. With, with our case in those 22 sects, as you, as you correctly pointed out, they innovated their own religion. You see, they came up and they propped up their own religion, and they forsake this one. So there was no splitting in our part. They just quit, you know, our ranks. It's not like we divided in within our beliefs. Yeah, I mean the, the the prophet has you know forewarned that they will they are destined to hellfire, but it doesn't mean that they are all condemned to hellfire. Just like a person who makes zina now, you know that's all hereafter. The one who murders, right? He has he's under the threat of punishment. Allah might forgive him. He might have good deeds to wipe it out. I mean there are different things you know that come into play. If you look around, they, some people might start trying to identify certain groups. As being among those 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 groups that would be of the help of, that you know maybe are in our midst here in America. 
Some of them may not necessarily be among those groups. Yeah, that's right. They definitely have some, some misbelief. Some misbelief, some incorrect beliefs. But they will still be a part of the, of the Jamaat. Yeah, yeah. Based on. And, and the point is, is that, I mean, and just to answer this question, and we'll just leave it at this, is that those 72 groups should not be understood that they are disbelievers. Prophet said they are from his ummah. They are people of, of the ummah, but they're not, you know what I'm saying, that they, are, they have caused, they're under the threat of punishment. Just like the one who eats the, consumes the wealth of the orphan, the one who commits illicit sex, the one who murders, and so forth. They're under the threat of the punishment. So those groups like the Qadianis, for instance, they're not part of the 73 sects. They're outside of the Ummah. They're apostate. When we talk about those 72 groups, we mean people who are Muslims. This is like to understand very clearly that there are Muslims, but they are under the threat of punishment. So the Qadianis, these other you know, groups, Baha'is, you know what I'm saying, and so forth and so on, you know, historically, these groups are not considered part of the 72 sects. These are outside the form of the Ummah, okay? And we can leave that for some other time, inshallah. Yes, yes, sir. Uh, seven characteristics you seven characteristics are 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 seven characteristics in that uh, two issues of Bashir. In one of his other works, no. he mentioned quickly seven principles. I might have just changed the order around, that's possible, you know, saying, or the wording of the, you know, not the, the same exact wording, but that's found in what you So, we have all seven sentences. Okay. We now came to, um, the next juncture, which is now we've, I guess, actually, actually entered into the lecture. Uh, we discussed an introduction, what is the word aqidah, what is ahlus al jama'ah, what does the salaf al-salih mean. And we also discussed the sources of the aqidah of jama'ah, we discussed the unique characteristics, which we just mentioned. So now we want to talk about the actual methodology used by ahlus al jama'ah in acquiring and deriving their creed. Okay. So there are basically 12 principles, which was mentioned, uh, uh, in that article by Nasr al-Aqal and I might have just changed the order or reworded some of them but that's the source of it so I would like to now mention these 12 principles which can you, we can say they form the basis of the methodology of the Medhaj employed by Ahlusim al-Jama'an inquiring and deriving specific issues of their belief now, why do I want to say briefly mention because Ibn Taymiyyah himself, as I mentioned in, uh, uh, earlier in the first lecture, took one of those principles and expounded it in a work which has been recently edited and published in ten volumes. And if we were to make this whole week just to discuss one of these principles, we probably wouldn't discuss it in its fullest sense. Okay. The idea is that we just want to try to understand the general intent behind these principles, right? So that we may prepare ourselves for further, you know, reading and understanding and discussion and so forth. To lay ourselves, we want to lay a foundation. I mean, the whole idea behind these lectures, inshallah, or my whole intent in, in these lectures uh, in the next couple of days is to try to lay a foundation, right? That later on we have to build upon through, you know, visits or through writings or 
whatever the means, but we need to build later on. Just lay the foundation. That's all I'm trying to do. So, the first principle, which we may say, is that the source or the aqidah, uh, the source for the aqidah, that is from Jama'ah, as I mentioned earlier, is restricted slowly to the Quran, the Sunnah, and the Ijma' of the Salaf al Salih, the confirmed Ijma' and the authentic Sunnah. That's the first principle. Remember, as I said, that, you know, reason, sound reasoning, and the fitrah, the natural disposition, the uncorrupted fitrah, while that does provide a basis for understanding some of the beliefs, but really there's such a limited scope that we cannot make it a, a, a major category. So we want to restrict it only to those three matters. As opposed to those people who base their, their religion and their beliefs upon what? Did I say earlier? I mentioned three things, huh? Right, mystical experience, dreams, and philosophical speculation, right? They have, this is counter, these counter these three principles, okay? We say no, the kitab, the sunnah, and the ijma'ah. And there are certain benefits for us to base our belief upon that. Um, one is that, well, we'll come to that later on. What do we say the sunnah of the Prophet this is the second principle we say that we will accept whatever is confirmed upon the Prophet whether it comes to us in a mutawatir or an ahad mode okay now when I said the confirmed sunnah the authentic sunnah of the Prophet by definition I mean in whatever means of transmission it comes to mutawatir means as you all probably will take in your hadith lectures it means that narration of the Prophet ﷺ, which has been narrated by so many chains of narration throughout each level of the narration that it's impossible for it to be a lie. It's called mutawatir. And the ahad is the opposite. It means really ahad means non-mutawatir. Ahad does not mean the report of a single person, as some people imagine. Ahad means just non-mutawatir, whether it comes three or five or one. The point is it's just it's non-mutawatir. Okay? And the reason why I say that, why did I make this the second principle, not I, why did the sheikh, who I'm quoting, made this the second principle, is because a lot of people will say we only accept aqidah if it's in a mutawatir mode, from the sunnah. But if it's in a ahad mode, we will not accept the aqidah, the matter of aqidah. Therefore, they reject a lot of matters of belief. But this is a problem which occurred very early in the history of Islam. And I'd like to refer to you to two works which you can read in the English language which will... Uh, provide, inshallah ta'ala, some further explanation concerning The first is Al-Risala by Imam al-Shafi'i, which has been translated by uh, Johns Hopkins University. A Iraqi Christian translated, and the translation is not bad. Uh, and you can probably, uh, it's out of print, but I'm sure, I think it's been reprinted in England by Islamic Text Society, something like that. He has a whole chapter there, Imam al-Shafi'i, concerning uh, Proving religious matters by the hadith of the ahad. The, the hadith of the ahad, the non-mutawatir hadith, is a religious proof. The second one is volume 9 of Sahih al-Bukhari. Remember Bukhari, comes, he has a, a, a book called uh, a Hadith Akbar al-Ahad, and then he has a book called Adherence to the Quran and the Sunnah, and then his book of Tawheed, in volume 9, the last volume of Sahih al-Bukhari. And there he brings proofs also. Now the proofs of Imam Bukhari might not be so clear. You might need some explanation from Fetra Bari. But inshallah, at least that with Imam Shafi'i's Risala, that one chapter, is a reference point that the brothers can use 
to find the proof that the Ahad Hadith is a proof of the religion. And there are other ways to prove it, but it's just a, as I said, a brief uh, explanation of these points. So what did we explain over here? We said that the source of our Aqidah, the first principle for the Aqidah is that there is restricted solely to the Quran, Sunnah, and the Ijma. It's going to put two S on these are the 12 principles, right? The 12 principles. The second one is that the Sunnah, whatever is confirmed upon the Prophet the confirmed Sunnah, we must believe in it, whether it's Mutawata or Ahad. Okay? What's the third principle? The third principle is that the Prophet has explained all the fundamentals of the religion. And this is of utmost uh, importance to really reflect upon this. Because as Ibn Taymiyyah says, this, he says, this is the, in this volume 19 over here, concerning this one principle over here. Just like to show you, I mean, how much he's written concerning it, just to... Um, give you an idea. Okay, here's this one essay concerning this principle which covers from page 155 to page 202 in this volume 19. 155 to 202. It's almost like, what, 50, some odd, 50 odd pages, 48 pages, something like that, 47 pages. So I'm trying to say that, and we're just going through these principles very quickly, you know, that we need, each need investigation, okay? Everything is, this is the fundamental of all fundamentals in this subject. Why? Because many people Imagine revelation, the Prophet to be merely like a postman. You know, the mail deliverer, mail carrier, he just comes and delivers you a letter and that's up to you to do with it what you want to do afterwards. But we have to understand that not only did the Prophet come to us with the Quran and the Sunnah, and there was no tampering in it whatsoever, and the Sahaba then transmitted that to us, and it's until today it's pure pristine form, but that, the, that these were explained by the Prophet especially when dealing with matters of the fundamentals of the religion. There is nothing which we need to know in belief except for the Prophet has explained to us. And the Sahaba understood this very carefully. That's why Abu Dhab said, there is not a single bird flapping its wings in the heavens, which there is, has some knowledge concerned about it, that, you know, that there's something we have to know about it, except for the Prophet something about it. So, all the fundamentals of religion has the Prophet ﷺ has explained to us. And here, there are three groups of people. The first group of people are the philosophers. They go against this principle. They don't accept it. The philosophers. What do the philosophers say? The philosophers like Al-Farabi. Great uh, you know, philosophy, Islamic philosophy in the sense of Islamic history. Had some, had an essay, you know, called al Medina of Qadila, or the, uh, I don't know, the, something like, Blessed City, something like Utopia, you know what I'm saying, which he based upon Aristotle's Republic. And also he had an essay concerning music and stuff like this, you know, it's a big, big person in, in Islamic philosophy. He basically says what? He says the Prophet, indeed all the Prophets are ignorant. They don't know what they're talking about. This is contention. And as a result, 
what is prophethood in his opinion? His prophethood, said, prophethood is really the combination of three powers that a person has. One is an imaginative power, a power of imagination, that the person imagines to see things like objects and hear sounds, and that's revelation. He calls this revelation. The second type of power is that he has, he has the power to affect the natural course of the universe. And those are his uh, miracles, you know, like splitting the moon and so forth. You know, he has some sort of innate power which allows him to change the, the laws of the universe. Those are the miracles of the prophet. And the third power is that he has an ability to learn without being taught. You know, that, that from the, from the, um, the active intellect, you know, the philosophers, they have this crazy belief, something called the active intellect, al-aql al-fa'ala. They say there's this active universal intellect, okay, that they can tap, the prophet can tap into this directly without having to learn, you know, through rigorous learning, you know, scholastic learning. These are, this is prophethood in his opinion. And yet, he believes that when the prophet comes start talking about Allah and the Day of Judgment and the realities and so forth, it was all wrong. That the truth of the matter lies in their speech, in the philosophical speech. And people like Aristotle and Plato and Socrates and all these other, you know, idiots are more knowledgeable than the Prophet and the other prophets. And this is clear kufr, without doubt. But the point is, they don't accept this principle that the Prophet has explained all the fundamental religions. They say no. What he's explained is wrong. You need philosophy in order for you to become enlightened, for you to understand these issues of metaphysics. Because metaphysics means that which is beyond reason or beyond sight or something like that. The second group, okay, is also another group of philosophers like Ibn Sina. Okay, so this is the second group of philosophers. This was Al-Farabi. Second group of philosophers are also philosophers like Ibn Sina. Ibn Sina, famous doctor and something. His medical text of Qanun was used for centuries in Europe. What if he comes to the matter? I mean, he was a good doctor, maybe, but what if it was the, comes to the matter of religious matters? He says, no, I mean, you can't imagine the prophets were ignorant. That's a bit too much. But what they did, they lied. How did they lie? They made up things, like paradise and hell, and that there is Allah is sitting on a throne, or not, not say sitting, Allah is above the throne, and he's watching, and he's hearing, and so forth. They made these things up. Why? Because who are they talking to? Here is the Prophet Muhammad coming in a desert full with a bunch of Bedouins. You know, these uncouth, uncivilized, half-naked Arabs in the desert. All they know is their camels and so forth. How is he going to bring them culture? Well, might make some motivation for them. So, he describes to them a Lord which can see and hear and knows and everything like that. And he also describes them as they do these certain good deeds, they'll get paradise, and they do certain bad deeds, they'll be punished. And in paradise it has certain pleasures, you know, and in hell it's certain punishments. So it occurs to do good deeds. So his argument is not that the prophets were ignorant, but they lied for a good reason, for the advancement of man. Okay. And that's his argument. The third argument, and that's because only a few enlightened people can understand philosophy, so the, the, the overwhelming majority, you know, masses of mankind, they need to have these type of motivational 
third group is like the, the theologists, you know, the, uh, like the people who study ilm al-kalam, okay? Like al-Ghazali. Famous person, you know, died in the year 505. What was his argument? He said, no. We can't say the prophets, you know, lied, and that's kufr. Nor can we say the prophets were ignorant, that's kufr. But what? The prophets purposely left the matter silent. Because they knew that people, if they were to talk about it, people would not understand and believe it. So they, so what they're saying is that the prophet purposely left the matter, in other words, the prophet left the matter, uh, what's, what's, what did I, how did I translate this over here? Yeah, the prophets were deliberately vague. For if they truly explained these realities, it would cause confusion and distress in the minds of their followers. Okay? How are you supposed to then understand the true realities of paradise and, and the hellfire and Allah and the attributes and why we are here? Well, there's two ways. Either you can take the route of philosophical speculation or the route of mystical experience. Either become a philosopher or become a Sufi. And then, when you reach a certain level, then you'll understand. You see, that's the question that they come with. Then you'll be able to use your reason to explain these things. Or if you're a Sufi, if you do these certain exercises, you know, starve yourself and say dhikr so many thousands of times, you know, all of a sudden one day, you'll wake up and you'll be enlightened. You know, you'll have a catch, an unveiling, and the, the veil upon the reality will be removed from your eyes and you can see things as they truly are. This is their argument. Okay? And this is a very, very false argument. What is our position? The Prophet explained all the fundamentals of the religion. And do you see how the importance of this principle is now? After explaining how these people have gone astray? Okay? Not only did he explain, and this is another important point, not only did he explain the certain issues of belief, like there's this and there's this and these matters of belief, but also the evidences which show these beliefs, and the, the correctness, what I think, the derivation of the beliefs and so forth was all explained by the Prophet Muhammad And this was all then transmitted by the Sahaba. And has been transmitted generation after generation. This knowledge will remain in this Ummah until Allah inherits the earth and all that's upon it. Yes? Yeah, it's Ibn Taymiyyah mentioned that essay of his, you know what I'm saying? And it's from Ibn Taymiyyah's book called the Isharat. Is that the Dawah? Uh, this is the Talib, volume 19. Okay. Ibn, Ibn uh, Sina has a book called the Isharat. Okay. Or maybe it's his book, I'm going to take him, I'm not really certain. But it's one of his classical works. You know, I think he makes reference to which book it is. Okay. He also makes reference to which book by Al Ghazali and so forth. And, and I saw in Al Ghazali's book, I found the statement that Ibn Taymiyyah, his reference to it, Ibn Taymiyyah was uh, mentioned that Al Ghazali found that myself. I checked it up myself and I found it there. And Ibn Sina, I haven't myself uh, uh, through a primary source. Ibn Sina's own work. So I found people quoting Ibn Sina, like Orientalists, saying the same thing that Ibn Sina was saying. What does he No, he said that, that, that the prophets were purposely vague. They didn't explain. Purposely what? Vague. Vague. Okay. That they, were, they purposely did not want to explain the, the, the matters, you know, how, how the beliefs are. Okay. In other words, they were, as Ibn Taymiyyah says, they accused them of what? Of treachery to the, re- the revelation. Because, you know, Allah in the Quran says, Ya ayyuhan nabi, right? 
you know, uh, relate what has been, or, you know, convey that which has been revealed to you. And no, but they purposely were they. They didn't want. And they said that, you know, there was reasons why, because, you know, it was a time for jihad and setting up the Islamic State, and, you know, they didn't really, and the people were not able to understand and so forth. They said, in order for you to understand, in other words, that if you look at the Quran and the Sunnah and you try to understand beliefs correctly, it won't help you. That if you just say that, I want to understand based on belief upon the Kitab and the Sunnah, that's not sufficient. That you need either philosophical speculation or mystical experience in order to understand it. Otherwise, it's not, it doesn't fulfill. Someone else would come and would explain it further or, or something. Right. A third group, I mean, it's a third group which you, you, can, you can add as a third besides the philosophical explanation and mystical experience, that this knowledge is with some sort of reference point besides the Prophet okay? And this is, can come over here against this point. When we say restricted the Quran and the Sunnah, they say that, there is, that this knowledge is somewhere else, not the Quran, the Sunnah like with some sort of hidden imam or something like that. You know, there's some sort of other source, source other than the Quran, the Sunnah, okay? That can be placed, understood from, branching from that. Okay, so now that we, what did we understand now in those principles, right? That, that the foundation belief is restricted only to the Quran, the Sunnah, and the Ijma'ah, right? The, the confirmed consensus and the authentic Sunnah. The Sunnah, whether it comes to us in the Mutawatan mode or the Ahad mode, we must accept it, right? That the Prophet Sallallahu uh, clearly explained the fundamentals of the religion. That it's not just a matter of just conveying to us, but also explained it. Okay? Comes the next point in our belief. Number four, the fourth principle, that the reference point, therefore, what would be the reference point for understanding? I mean, in our case. In understanding the Quran and the Sunnah. I mean, we have now concurred that we're only going to take our belief in the Quran and the Sunnah. The Prophet explained it. So, what is our reference point for that? Well, we have three points. The first point is that those clear, unequivocal texts of the Quran and the Sunnah. This is a reference point for understanding Aqidah, right? Understood, right? For understanding Afida. Afida or creed. You know, there are certain things in the Quran and the Sunnah are clear and unequivocal. Right? I mean there's no way that it can it can possibly be misunderstood. Especially the very major issues of belief. Like for instance, the finality of the Prophet. Do we need to approve this through the consensus of the Salaf? No. This is something clear, unequivocal, in the Quran and the Sunnah. The fact that there's a last day and people will be raised from their grave. This is something clear and unequivocal. Right? So these things are the first reference point. The second reference point is the understanding, as you correctly uh, pointed out, brother, the understanding of the Salaf. And we now know who we mean by the Salaf, right? And obviously those scholars who followed the understanding of the Salaf, by extension, throughout the centuries. This is the second reference point. There are some matters which is not one of the clear unequivocal texts of the Quran and the Sunnah. I'll give you an example. The, the issue is the Quran created, the created speech of Allah, or is it Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala literally speaks of the Quran and his, his own words, uncreated words, revealed to him. 
this for many people might not be clear and unequivocal just in the Quran and the Sunnah. But, and so, in this case, we go to the understanding of the Salaf. Okay? Although, I mean, it is really clear in the Quran and the Sunnah that, you know, the Quran is uncreated and it's the actual literal words of Allah. But many people might not apparently understand that, like the question of the people will be raised from their graves for a reckoning. It's not as clear for most people. So here we come to the understanding of the Salaf. The third uh, reference point we have is the Arabic language. And over here we have to, obviously, the Arabic language went at the time of Revelation. Not modern standard Arabic 101 taught in University of Colorado. Is this what University of Colorado? Oh, okay, well, whatever. It's Georgetown University. Okay. School of Foreign Affairs. Huh? We have 505 in Austin. 505 in Austin. It means the Arabic language is during the time of Revelation. Okay? Now, here is something which is a corollary, okay, sub rule of, of this of this principle. To this point three. Sometimes, you know, linguistically, things are plausible. They have more than one meaning. It's plausible, okay? If something is plausible in the Arabic language, okay, it's a plausible meaning that contradicts either the clear unequivocal text of the Quran and Sunnah or the understanding of the Salaf and those scholars who have their understanding. We will not put forth a plausible understanding of the Arabic language above that. And I'll give you an example. Even if this is not plausible, but just for the sake of argument, okay? The people who deny that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is upon his throne, right? Will argue that, according to the Arabic language, the word al-istiwa, which in Arabic literally means to rise above and settle. Okay? And Allah uses this several times in the Quran to describe himself. He says that he has risen above and settled upon his throne. They will explain this. They say it means conquered. Okay? And they will use a line of Arabic poetry. It's a, a spurious line of Arabic poetry. And it occurred after revelation by, you know, some great tribe where it says قَدْ إِسْتَوَى بِشِرٌ عَلَى الْعِرَاقِ that Bishr has istawa upon Iraq okay, and those conquered Iraq okay with either not with sword and bloodshed and so forth so this is a line of poetry and they use this as an argument to say that the word istiwa can mean conquer so therefore we have to understand this verse الرحمن وعلى العرش istawa that the merciful has is still or has risen above and is above and settled upon his throne to me that he has conquered his throne. Well, first of all, we said Arabic is time of revelation. So that's not part of the Arabic is time of revelation. But let's just say for the sake of argument that that's a meaning, a plausible meaning in the Arabic language, even though it's not, as the scholars have, of grammar have shown. But would we then take this plausible meaning, right? That it could mean conquer and use it to the clear, unequivocal text of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. I mean, there are over a thousand proofs in the Qur'an and the Hadith. We say that it shows that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is above His creation and so forth. And likewise, the understanding of the Salaf, generation after generation, and use this out of plausible thing and put it up. No. Not whatsoever. That's just for the sake of argument, had that it been plausible. But obviously, it's not even a valid in the Arabic language. So that's maybe a poor example. That's the only one that comes to my mind right now. So the point is that we take reference point of our aqidah, this is the fourth principle of Ahasan Jumaan deriving their beliefs, is that 
they, uh, the clear unequivocal text of the Quran and the Sunnah, the understanding of the Salaf al-Salih, and the Arabic language of the time of revelation. However, when there is something which is linguistically plausible, okay, we will not use a linguistical plausibility to deny something which is a clear unequivocal text of the Quran and the Sunnah, or something which is the clear understanding of the Salaf al-Salih. That's something which is very important, you know, when sometimes these people try to use these arguments, like the Qadiyani, I mean, this is an example, that the word Khatib, you know, does it mean the seal, or does it mean the, um, huh? No. The last, or the seal, or does it mean like the, um, huh? The best. The best, or like the, uh, you know, the, what's the other way you say it? Zina, Zina. The beauty, the beauty of the prophethood, you know. And this is what they try to argue linguistically. So even if that was linguistically plausible, right, as a meaning, in that verse, right, we will still not use that to deny all these other unequivocal texts of the Quran, the Sunnah and the Hadith, which shows the Prophet was the last prophet. And the understanding of the Salaf, that the, the Prophet was the last prophet, there was no prophet to appear afterwards. Okay, so this is something important to keep in mind. That was the fourth uh, principle. Now, Principle five. Okay, so what do we say now? Let's, let's, uh, I like to go through the four principles really quickly every single time we, as we add up principles. We can see how the train of thought goes. Restricting the aqidah only to the book, the sunnah, and the ijma'ah of the salaf. They confirmed the ijma'ah and the authentic sunnah. We accept whatever is confirmed upon the Prophet whether it's mutawatir or a hazard transmission. The Prophet explains all the fundamentals of the religion. The reference point for our, our understanding that is the clear, unequivocal text of Quran, the Sunnah, the understanding of the Salaf in the Arabic language, the time of revelation. But if there's a linguistical plausibility, we do not use that to deny something which is unequivocal or the clear understanding of the Salaf. The next point that, therefore, if this is the case, we must therefore submit inwardly and outwardly to Allah His Messenger. And therefore, we cannot oppose anything which is established by the Quran, the Sunnah, and Aqidah merely because of uh, an analogy you know, philosophical speculation, qiyas, mystic sensation or unveiling, which they call kestrin dhok, or the opinion of any scholar. Okay? So, let me put that down. So, what's this number? What number, what number are we on? Five? Okay. So, therefore, we must submit, submit inwardly and outwardly, right? Inward. And outwardly to the Quran and the Sunnah. And we cannot then oppose that by what? Either qiyas, analogy. And over here, I mean analogy in the sense of philosophical speculation, matters of belief. We're not talking about analogies of part of the school of fiqh or matters of fiqh. Okay? Two, mystical experience, which is your catch or your dope. And three, statements of, you know, some scholar or whatever reference point they want to use, you know. Right? And do you see how the logical conclusion now follows in the beliefs, right? And we have it's affirmed that the beliefs are only found in the Quran and the Sunnah. They've been clearly explained. There's no corruption in it. Therefore, what's upon us to submit? 
And this is why you have a set of understood this. this. All those principles are explained in, like, in one sentence of this stuff. I'll give you the same of Imam Zuhri, for instance. When asked concerning a certain issue, and this you'll find this in Bukhari, I believe, he said, from Allah is the message, and upon the Prophet is to convey that message, and upon us is to submit. In those few words, he summarized all that I've been saying in the last, you know, 40 minutes or so. That's why they, the Salaf used to also say about them that their words in the Salaf were few, I mean, terse, but had much blessing and were very wide meaning. And the words of the Khalaf were a lot of words that little benefit in it. So, that's all that principle was in this, and that's just one saying. From Allah's message, upon the Prophet to convey that message, and upon us is to submit to it. It wasn't a question in their mind that so-and-so said, or, you know, my, I can't understand this, you know, but as they say now, okay, brother, I just, just didn't seem to get to my, you know, head, brother, <laughs> you know. Or I had a dream last night, you know, or, you know, I, I, just, just, I just don't feel right with this. These things that people use, you know, impediments for, instead of submitting to Allah and His Messenger's Father. Now, that being the case, that we're not going to oppose it by analogy and so forth, but what about now comes the question between revelation and reasoning? Therefore, we come to principle number six, right? That sound reasoning is always in agreement with correct transmission of revelation. And there's, there's some principles which will be derived from that in a second. Sound reasoning is always in agreement with correct transmission of revelation. We said that we're not going to oppose the Quran the Sunnah, we're going to submit to it, we're not going to oppose it by our reasoning or by mystical experience, right? Or by the statement of so-and-so. But is it possible then, therefore, that reasoning, as many people believe now, Muslims and non-Muslims, that, you know, that religion and reasoning are just two different things, you know? That you have to believe in religion even though it makes no sense. No, it's impossible. Sound reasoning is always in agreement with correct transmission of revelation. Why? Because who is the one who gave you, created your mind and gave you the ability to reason? Allah. And who is the one who is sending down the revelation? Allah. And as Allah in the Quran says, describing the Quran, but it's a general principle that had it been from other than Allah, they would have found much discrepancy or contradiction between them. But that's why we said sound reasoning. Because not every single person's reasoning is sound. Sometimes a person will reason it's a faulty reasoning. And that's why we say correct transmission of revelation. Because not everything which is said to be part of the revelation is really part of the revelation. We know, for instance, we have weak hadith, right? And also we know that there of the previous scriptures, they've been corrupted. So now we find something in, in the previous books, right? Which goes against sound reasoning. And we say, therefore, that, okay, then this whole thing of revelation just take it and drop it away. No, because that revelation has no longer been transmitted correctly to us. It's somehow, through the centuries, it's been lost. Okay? Now, out of Allah's great blessing and mercy, that the Quran and the Sunnah is preserved until the Day of Judgment. The Quran is definitely preserved. And the Sunnah is also preserved, because it's part of the reminder 
which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that he's going to preserve. It's the explanation of the Qur'an. And that's something which, you know, maybe in the lectures of hadith, you know, there will be explanation about how fabricated hadith appeared and how can we be certain that, you know, the sunnah is still in its pristine form, that it hasn't been changed and so forth. I mean, this is something which needs to be discussed, but we're to discuss it now, we would not finish these principles, so. I just want you to understand the general thing. Do you see why I said sound reasoning in correct terms of use for them? Yes, does it mean that everything in the Quran has a sound reasoning for like you can't say everything with a sound reasoning. No, it doesn't mean that. That's not what we're trying to say. Okay. What we're trying to say is, you know, al-aql al-sahih and al-tafkir al-sahih. Right? لا تخالف الوحي الثابت يعني عن الله وعن نصوله صلى الله عليه وسلم. لأن من الذي خلق العقل في الإنسان؟ ليس الله سبحانه وتعالى هو الخالق؟ ومن هو الذي أنزل الوحي على رسوله صلى الله عليه وسلم؟ ليس هو الله سبحانه وتعالى؟ إن كان جاب بطريقة الكتاب أو طريقة السنة يعني. فمستحيل تكون أي نوع من المعارضة بينهما. لكن الإنسان فكر شيء ثم وجد في الكتاب والسنة خلاف ذلك الخطأ ليس في الكتاب والسنة، الخطأ في تفكيره. عرفتم كيف؟ أو إذا كان تفكيره صحيح لعل هذا الحديث ليس بثابت. أو لعل هذا الكتاب مثل الكتب القديمة كتب اليهود والنصارى ليست يعني كما أنزل الله سبحانه وتعالى لكن قد حرف فيما بعد ذلك هذا هو المعنى هذه القاعدة لكن ليس المقصود في القاعدة أنك أنت تخذ عقلك وخذ تفكيرك نعم ثم اذهب فاحكم على الكتاب والسنة كما تشاء فما وجدت فيها يعني توافق عقلك فخذوا وما لم ما لم تجد فيه يعني في الكتاب والسنه توافق يعني تفكيرك يعني فرجوه، هذا ليس هذا المقصود فيه. الله اعلم. Sorry for that digression. You can cut it out from the tape later on. Okay. So uh, now what is the, and uh, maybe I shouldn't erase it, what is the, there's a point which is derived from that is that what contradiction is imagined? I mean, when you imagine contradiction between the Qur'an, or let's say not the Qur'an, Revelation, we should say, Revelation, Revelation, and reasoning, what are you supposed to do in this case? This is the, the big question of arguments between Ahl al-Hadith and the Ash'adis and others. Huh? Well, that's, uh, but we should understand why. They say put reasoning above revelation. And that's not true. And the reason why we have to sort of spend just a few minutes trying to explain this. That every proof, all proofs, whether lying in revelation or reasoning, are two types. And this is part of Usul al Fiqh, you know, Sheikh Jamal will explain to you, inshallah. There are those proofs which are called absolute proofs. Absolute, which in Arabic is the term is these types of proofs mean those proofs which there is no possibility having another explanation to it. It's just something which is absolute. That's what I mean the word absolute in this sense. And then there are those proofs which are, which are, I mean, they mean this, but there's a small possibility, no matter how slight, of not being valid. Those are called vanni. Okay? Vanni. 
Now, sometimes they translate Zunmi as doubtful. It doesn't mean doubtful. What it means, it means not absolute, okay? Non-absolute. In the sense that there is some, I mean, even if you might imagine, you know, 0.001%, I mean, as small, there is, it's not just absolute in that sense. That there's, there's some chance that that understanding could be lost. So everything, whether in revelation, any proof in revelation or in reasoning, is either qat'i or dhanni, without doubt. The correct rule, this is what the Esha'aris and the others couldn't understand, is that when we have two things which we imagine contradiction, because we said there's no contradiction between sound reasoning and correct transmission revelation. If we imagine that, we have to look at the proofs. If it's a qat'i proof, we put the qat'i before the vanni proof. Whether that qat'i proof lies in revelation or lies in reasoning. And I'll give you an example. Let us just say for the, uh, I think the majority of the Muslims will agree, something that we were discussing or somebody picked up a, a discussion with Brother Jamal after Salah of Jamal, concerning whether the earth is flat or round, right? Now, this is, can, we can say probably all certainty or, you know, that it's a qat'i proof that the earth is round. There are some evidences in the Quran, right, that might indicate that, or somebody might understand from that, that the earth is flat from that. But these evidences are not qat'i in the sense that they're absolute. That there is a possibility that this is... Because there are other evidences which show maybe that the other is true. Okay? Because some scholars historically in Islam like Ibn Hazm and Ibn Taymiyyah said the earth was round. You know? They were way before Columbus, right? So, they said the earth was round. You'll find that in the Fatawa you'll find. And also, uh, in Tabaqat al-Hanabila, uh, a book of biographies of the Hamadi scholars, You'll find the Ijma'at the Tabi'in mentioned in one of the biographies of the Earth is Round. But the point is, is that some scholars have based upon certain arguments of the Quran and Revelation, one the argument that the Earth is flat. So here we have something absolute and we have something which is not absolute, one In this case, we would place forth the Qat'i to the one The error doesn't occur in the Revelation. But it incurs in the sense that the proof used in Revelation is not an absolute proof, and the understanding behind it is possibly miscorrect and not uh, not uh, 100% uh, valid. So therefore, we place reasoning to Revelation. Now, there are other things which Revelation is absolute, like concerning the existence of the torment of the grave, the torment of the grave, right? The punishment in the grave that people will receive, disbelievers and also the sinful of this ummah. May Allah protect us from that. It's something which is a qat'i, something, an absolute thing known in Revelation. Because of the, the numerous hadith in there and also the proofs in the Quran and so forth, and the ijma'at and the salaf. Therefore, the, any argument which somebody might bring from reason will not stand up to that qat'i proof. Okay? So, the argument is not that we always say we put revelation above reasoning. Or that we put reasoning above revelation. But the point is we look at the evidence in that and we put that which is absolute over that which is not absolute. However though, when we're in doubt, when we're in doubt, and this is what the brother said which is, has truth to it, when we're in doubt, what, do we, what should we imagine has more chance of having error in our own reasoning or revelation? Our own reasoning. So that's why if it's safe, it's always safer just to put the revelation ahead. And that is why... What is the jaraf, the people who are وَرَاتِكُونَ فِي الْعِلْمِ يَقُولُونَ آمَنَّ بِهِ كُلٌّ مِنْ عِنْدِ رَبِّنَا Those who are deeply, firmly rooted in knowledge, 
They say we believe in it in its whole, it's in its entirety, the revelation. It's all from our Lord. Okay? So that, and this thing, this principle, I mean, it came here, wrote about in ten volumes. So this is one of the, this is the first argument he brings about now. Yeah, but if, if a person rejects uh, one proof in, in the uh, Quran, let us say, like you said, there's one proof in the Quran that the earth is round, but if a person rejects it... No, I said, I said, the, the, the proof that they use right is that the earth is flat. Okay, there are some other one proofs which are, uh, which are to the effect that the earth is round. But let us say there are, okay. for the sake of argument. Now, if, if a person rejects these one, uh, the Fatai proof and reasoning, and he, uh, he tends to believe the Zani proof in, in Revelation, then uh, what is his... Uh, you think he's wrong or... You think well, if you think if he's rejecting the Qadr proof and reasoning, right? Yeah. I mean, he's rejecting something which is no doubt is yeah. true, just like the sun rises from the east and sets in the west, right? But obviously he would be wrong in this case, right? But what would be safer for his religion in this case? That would be safer what would be safer for his religion? Allah knows, because I, I, this question comes to my mind because I heard that some ulama have, uh, Wait, that or, or have been claiming that... Okay, that's not the question about the ulama, I mean, the, in certain ulama. The, the point is, is that, and the point is, is that that person who put forth that vanni proof in the Qur'an over that reasoning, obviously he did not feel that reasoning was absolute. Right? It's difficult to prove reasoning is absolute. Right? You see what I'm saying? I mean, can you prove that a proof from reasoning is absolute? It's somewhat difficult sometimes, right? Because, you know, I mean, there's always the possibility that you always have some doubt, right? There's always a shadow of a doubt, as they say, right? That, that, that reasoning could be false, right? So that's why it's always better when you imagine contradiction to put revelation of two reasoning. But the point is, as a principle, that the proofs are two types, whether found in faith and revelation and reasoning. There are those which are qat'i and those are those are abundant. And qat'i takes precedence to abundant. Whether that qat'i occurs in revelation or occurs in reasoning. And also, also if you have two proofs in, in revelation, one qat'i proof in revelation, one bani proof in revelation, what do you put forward? The qat'i proof of revelation. Of revelation. And likewise in reasoning, if you have one qat'i reasoning and one bani reasoning, you put the qat'i. This is, this is the principle. I mean, I guess Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Qayyim who expounded in this way, try to show that the argument or the premise of the argument and maybe I, this is uh, a failing on my part to explain this earlier that the premise that the Esha'aris and the others use okay that if reason and revelation contradict we must put forward reasoning that this premise is a false premise in the first place and this classification that they use is incorrect it's not the correct classification the correct classification is that if a proof is Qat'i or a proof is Vadni we put forward the Qat'i proof first you know Knowing that there could never be any contradiction, that this is only a supposed or imagined contradiction, and that um, it makes always better sense to attribute fault to one's reasoning or the reasoning of somebody else than to try to attribute fault to revelation. Especially when we know the revelation is confirmed, like hadith or a verse in the Quran and so forth. Uh, this, is, this is the argument of the sophist. And this is one of the principles, we have 20 principles of how do we refute, uh, how does to refute people, which I don't think we'll ever get to. Uh, that, um, that, uh, this is the, like the second or third time it's happened, we never get to the 20 proof. But, uh, uh, that, um, that we do not argue with the sophists. You see, the sophistry has four types of sophistry. One type of sophistry that every truth is relative. But there's nothing which you can say that is true, you know. 
And one of our one of the principles of Hassan Jamal is they don't argue with these people because I mean, it's just really it's sophistry. It's what they call a sophistry. Yeah, it's, it's not doesn't it doesn't it doesn't value to argue with them. No, that's not sophisticated. <laughs> 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 it means uh, well, I would waste this for them. Philosophers are not to be too expounded on here. A trip back to Houston or Austin. Thanks for that. Let's try to quickly, uh, you know, run this down before we. What, what, what number did we get to? Six, seven, or seven. Oh yeah, this, this is this is a very important. Um, we only have about two or three more. I mean, I, I think I cut down the twelve to ten before. So I think there's only ten, really. I think I I took out two. Eight, eight, eight. Okay, in matters of aqidah. It is required to adhere to the wording employed by the Sharia and avoid all innovated wording. Okay, so in matters of aqidah, right? We've now said that we've, we've shown that the aqidah is in the Quran and the Sunnah, right? That it's been explained and that we're going to submit to it. Okay, now comes our bayan, our explanation of it, you see? After we've submitted to it, we're going to explain it now. We must adhere to the wording employed by the Qur'an and the Sunnah and avoid all innovated wording. In other words, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made part of our religion that we worship Him by to believe in these matters of aqidah, He also made part of our worship to Him that we express this aqidah in a certain way. We have to use certain words which are part of revelation. Okay? And that's why, for instance, in describing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you cannot make up names for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But you must use the names that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers himself by. Okay? And likewise, in teaching the religion, in teaching aqidah, you cannot use your own innovative wording. Like the philosophers use. Okay? Like the, um, let me try to think of some innovative wording. Like, uh, let's think of something which is not much explanation. Like, okay, give me an example. Like the word Jebba. Okay? Jebba means you're compelled upon your...